Hey, everybody. Welcome once again to another episode of the Winning Digital Customers podcast. I have a fantastic guest and friend with me here today, Peter Wang, who is the CTO, the Chief Technology Officer of BuzzFeed. The odds are very good that BuzzFeed or one of their properties is a part of your life somewhere, whether it's one of the main BuzzFeed branded properties. They also own the Huffington Post or HuffPo, Tasty, and a number of other properties altogether, which comprise more than 3.2 billion monthly content views. So a major, major digital content destination. And we will be talking today about product development, team setup, and the challenge or ways in which you really work with stakeholders within a large media organization or probably any large organization to get awesome stuff done. So Peter, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. And is there anything you'd like to add to my quick intro of you? No, that sounds good. How are you doing? Awesome. Awesome. Great. Let's dive right in and let's talk about product development. I know this is an area that you're very passionate about, and I know that you have many, many products that you're responsible for there. Perhaps you could just make sure uh, everybody understands what would be a typical product that you're responsible for there at BuzzFeed. And then the key question is, I know your challenge with constantly making them better, constantly making them perform more effectively in a world that keeps changing. Technology changes, people's expectations change. What do you do there to keep cranking out great new products and keep updating your existing products to stay competitive? BuzzFeed has a very, I would say a very broad coverage across what we call cultural relevance. First of all, we own a number of brands, right? As you mentioned, we own the BuzzFeed flagship brand itself, which of which there's entertainment within it. There's verticals such as commerce. It's all about shopping. There's also verticals such as quiz, BuzzFeed quiz, which is being a long-standing interactive gaming experience, probably since like 2008. And then we also have news, BuzzFeed News, we have HuffPost, which uh, recently acquired. And then we have lifestyle brands like Tasty, which really focused on food, not only cooking, but also how do you buy groceries more efficiently as well. All of these are very much lifestyle cultural brands. And when we talk about digital products in those areas, there's a few different types. There's purity from the consumer perspective, just consumption experience of how do people consume the BuzzFeed content. There's also very interactive elements, the utility aspect of it, such as how do people shop through BuzzFeed? How do people take the quizzes? Is a single player experience on the quiz? Is a multiplayer experience we call quiz party? How do you do that both across desktop web, mobile web, and of course in the app? We have an app for every single brand out there. There's also integrations with our partners, such as we have a very strong integration with Walmart through Tasty, where people can shop at ingredients from a recipe and then pick it up at Walmart, check out a Walmart and pick it up at Walmart. Like how does that integration work? And so on and so forth. So there's quite a, a wide range of things. Of course, internally, there's a lot of products internally that we use by the editorial team. Our content management systems is homegrown over the last, uh, over the last 10 years. We have a distribution platform that's also very internal to us, proprietary, to allow us to distribute content much more intelligently across over 100 channels out there on Facebook, on Instagram, on Pinterest, across every relevant social platform out there. Of course, there's also analytics internally as well. How do we understand the performance of content? We understand the performance of not only engagement, but also monetization of content, as well as user behavior, what we call product analytics. And then we have a machine learning team on personalization. So there's quite a range of things supporting one another 
It sounds exhausting, Peter. It sounds absolutely exhausting. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> it's fun and exhausting at the same time. To your question about like, how do we help, right? How do we keep move, things moving forward? How do we help you making progress? How do we make them better? And I know every company is thinking about product development. And I think Amazon's approach of customer-centric approach is also very much embedded within BuzzFeed. And I think every company has a few principles. I would say for us, customer-centric is definitely one of those. And the customers, we have actual users, like individual customers. There's, of course, stakeholders such as advertisers we work with. And this, of course, there's different kinds of advertisers we focus on. There's some very much like CPGs of the world. There's some very commerce-driven, like retailers of the world. And there's internal stakeholders. So we definitely, different teams, and by the way, and within BuzzFeed Tech, which is the tech department, we have about 15 different teams. And each team owns a particular product area that they can focus on. And I can give some examples. Of the 15 teams, they're also organizing three umbrellas. One umbrella primarily focused on consumer facing. So we have a team focused on the apps. We have one team focused on Tasty. One team focused on Quiz and so on. An umbrella focused on revenue-driven product areas. One could be about revenue technology, uh, primarily around advertising. One's about commerce. How do you drive commerce revenue? And then there's a, a whole group around internal tools, one about content systems, one about distribution uh, of our content, and so on and so forth. And of course, there's core infrastructure. By dividing up our teams in a way that allows teams to have a area they own is one of the first steps. And of course, within each team, there is also structure in a way that's very, uh, we have a very matrix organization and every team it consists of a number of leads, product lead, engineering lead, often design lead, and sometimes data lead as well, and consists of uh, engineers, designers on the team. Every team goes through a very similar, I would say, what we call like rituals in terms of planning. And that's where I think the way we scale and we operate. So I'll give you a very uh, real life example. Every quarter we go through, I know every quarter people, a company goes through like quarter planning, right? Big and small companies go through those. And we also go through something similar, what we call QPR quarterly product review. And in that review, every team puts together a few things. And this is where the progress in terms of how the teams identify improvements, how they make progress. Each one, so every QPR consists of what goals they're aiming for. Every team has two goals. One goal is what we call a North Star goal. So for example, the apps team could be focusing on the monthly active users. And that's the goal they're gunning for, how to improve MAU. And they also have a second secondary goal, what we call a counter goal. The purpose of the counter goal is really that on the way to achieving your North Star goal, you cannot sacrifice the counter goal. So some people say, if I want to maximize MAU, I can game that by acquiring cheaply inactive users. They're not very relevant to us, but I can boost that number up. So that's why we have two goals to counterbalance one another. And that really sets up the, what the team's aiming for. And from there, the teams actually figure out what we call like diagnosis. Okay, so given this MAU goal you have for the squad apartment quarter, what would you project it to be? So for example, and then projection is actually quite important. For example, right now it's Q, you know, at the end of July 30th. This is the, uh, a little bit into Q3 right now. When we do the Q3, QPR, each team actually put together monthly projections on say their MAU for the app. And they actually think about on the macro basis, what do they anticipate Q3 to bring? For example, the world is opening up. Maybe the engagement should go down because people are spending more time outdoors. If so, they take a discount based on that. So very realistically, in Q4, we probably will go up, back up as you know, winter sets in, people come back indoors, and so on and so forth. So those projections on the goals and accurate diagnosis are, the, I would say, the first half of the QPR. 
we spend quite a bit of time debating about the diagnosis. And the diagnosis oftentimes not only consists of quantitatively numbers we get uh, because we track all the user events, behavior on the app, but also qualitative research. So the teams have done research on, say, quiz behavior. Why do people take quizzes? What part about the quiz feed is confusing? Those are the areas uh, that help us understand, hey, here's, here's some of the, the whys. And then the rest of the second half is much more, I would say, more tactical. Let's say two parts. There's approach. Approach is about given the diagnosis, here's how we're going to approach the problem. One example could be if we identify that in the BuzzFeed quiz world, there are so many great quizzes, and yet the discovery of quizzes relevant to you is a weakness for us. Then the approach would say, to do so, we have a couple of different approaches. Can have one approach could be we show you the most trending quizzes across the entire BuzzFeed universe, or we can also have a different modules that are much more personalized to you. And here's how we approach personalization. And then given the approach, the last part is about the, the roadmap, like the actual projects to make it happen. So it's actually fairly like a cascading approach to getting down to what projects. And of course, there's a little section at the bottom around discussion points. You know, discussion points could be about trade-offs, discussion points could be about resourcing, discussion points could be about challenges with our stakeholders or and so on and so forth that are get in that could get in the way uh, of you executing on your on your roadmap. Yeah, that's fascinating. And you only said one thing in all that that I disagree with, which is you said, well, a lot of companies are probably doing this. And I tell you, <laughs> I work with dozens and dozens of Fortune 500 type companies. And I think the number of companies that have a disciplined process of looking at each product on a quarterly basis, re sort of baselining, where are we? Where do we need to go? What are our goals for the next quarter? I'm not sure I know anybody that really does do that on a consistent ongoing basis, certainly not on a quarter. Everyone's got some sort of reports, sure, some sort of metrics that come out. But the process you're describing sounds very, honestly, very mature and a process that there's probably a lot of people listening could probably benefit from using it as a template. And I don't think it's so common. Yeah. Well, thank you. We'll take that as a compliment. It's definitely something that we have iterated over time. We're actually working with, uh, we're using Coda as, as our tool and we're actually working with Coda to kind of generalize our template and coming up and publishing it over the next, uh, over the next couple of months. Great. Let's segue into talking a little more about teams. You talked about how your tech team is broken up into, I think you said around 15 teams. So you kind of gave us the basic structure and that makes a lot of sense. Tell me a little bit more about how do you determine who goes on what team? Who gets to be on the tasty team? Is it based on if they're, they love food or is that a technical issue? Or is it just, this is the slot we have and you're the person we just hired. So that's the slot you're in. And is that a long-term assignment? Like if I'm on the Tasty team, that's probably my job for the next five years or are people rotated around? How do you manage those teams to optimize the talent on each team and optimize the total collection of teams? Yeah, that's, your, that's a very good question because anytime you have a company that is X number of years, for, your, for example, BuzzFeed is 14, 15 years old now, there's definitely a ton of evolutions on the teams. I, I'll probably, I could probably break it down like from creation of the teams to composition of the teams to evolution of the teams. Maybe I can, we can, maybe we can speak about those. The creation of the teams often is by purely by demand, by need. And I think the creation of the team, as we just created a team uh, internally called web infrastructure, which is really focused on the front end performance of, of our web properties. And that is created based on a need that we identified that where specialization is important. We noticed that the performance of web is not something that is standardized enough it's becoming more ad hoc versus standard, and it's costing us in a number of areas. BuzzFeed has a very bottom of a culture, which is important in the context of things because some companies are very top down. 
and top-down culture tend to have more reorgs in general, uh, where strategy is set, organization resourcing is set, and then the prop gets downward. BuzzFeed is much more bottom-up, which has both pros and cons. We can talk about that's a whole different conversation. But because BuzzFeed is more bottom-up, the what I call like the zipper between top-down and bottom-up is carefully and we're constantly iterating. How does that work from a strategy point of view? How does it work from a resource point of view? How does it work from an organizational point of view? And when it comes to teams, web infrastructure, Nimi's team, as a great example, it was actually created, nominated from bottom up. Two folks within tech said, we have been focusing on this problem for the last year or so. Within as a subset of a team, they say, I think it's time for us to break out and create our own team, essentially getting escalated to the top level because uh, we wanted to own our roadmap we have a clear vision where we're going to be. So then I will work this tech leadership, which is the VPs and myself within tech, we'll work with them and say, okay, what would you want to achieve? That's kind of like a one version of creation of the team that's much more organic. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because as I think about the kind of teams you're describing, it sounds like a team like that is kind of a support team for, for other teams. And so one thing I know I've seen many companies struggle with is try to figure out how do you slice the teams, right? So for example, you have a design team, a UX team, or does every product team just have their own UX people? And so in the example that you just gave, it sounds like somebody has proposed and, and you've decided to execute something that says, well, we're going to take this issue of web performance. And instead of asking every team to solve that problem for their own product, we're going to have a team that, and tell me if I'm misinterpreting what you're saying, is kind of the one place where we do web performance, sort of a center of excellence. And then they're going to serve all the other teams. But I imagine there's other skills that you say, oh, no, 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 we don't want one team that does all the UX design or one team that does all the backing. We're going to put that in the individual product teams. Any tips and guidance on how to do that? And might someone else propose a different bottom-up separation of something like, let's say, UX, where you would say, no, actually, we don't want to make that one team. We want to keep that in the product team. How do you determine what belongs in a product team versus what should be in kind of a support team? Yeah, that's actually a really good question because there's a few different concepts what do you centralize and what do you decentralize? It's really one. And I would say in an organization, the centralization and decentralization of a function can happen depending on the context. I'll give you one good example. App development actually used to be decentralized one at one point within BuzzFeed Tech, but because there was not enough shared protocol on how multiple teams can contribute to a single app, it was centralized in order to create more consistency, to create more efficiency, like here's how we should be doing it. But now that we have a centralized team for a while, we want, now our problem is shifted from consistency to how can we parallelize work across multiple verticals within the app. For example, we would like the shopping team to be able to have more control over their tab. We would like the quiz team to have more control over their area within the app and so on and so forth. Now it's time to decentralize. And this actually happened at the end of last year. So as we're doing it, and this is almost like take two of decentralization. So, hey, what did we learn from the first time? We didn't have an agreed upon communication development protocol. So this time we're actually doing it much more methodically. First is, you know, having a, make sure we have enough resources. So we actually start a ramping up a hire of app engineers to make sure teams are staffed up. Two, there's clear communications of how things work. The app team will hire app engineers, send them to say a commerce team to embed in the commerce team for a while work on some projects, understand how it works before that person becomes a full-time on the commerce team. So that is how we centralize, decentralize, coordination-wise. Another concept you're mentioning is kind of the vertical versus horizontal team structure. A vertical is much more like a matrix, for example. The commerce team is, is, is vertical. They have all the folks necessary 
to make commerce work for the most part. A Hazar team is one that serves multiple teams. So the web infra team I mentioned is one that serves multiple teams. They have experts in one domain. They create the standards for it and they advocate for that, that domain across teams. And we have both of those inside BuzzFeed Tech, depending on things. If you want to optimize for speed and control, you do vertical, right? Minimize all dependencies. If you want to optimize for consistency and things like core infrastructure performance, you need consistency across. Otherwise, you would have teams that are, are not following the standards. You need something horizontal. And actually, that's when the selection of people comes in. You mentioned about how do you, how do you decide whom should be in what team? For a horizontal team, you need people who are thinking much more service-oriented. They're thinking, okay, I'm not here just for my own product. I'm here to create a standard. I'm here to set an example. I'm also going to advocate for this. Say, how do we add observability to the web uh, layer? How do we create protocols that others can share? That's kind of the specific kind of person you would need on the horizontal team. What you just said was a real epiphany for me because I've seen this back and forth at so many companies and, and just this the journey you, you just said, you know, somebody comes along and says, okay, we're too chaotic. We're too siloed. We need to centralize stuff. And then a year and a half later, some new management comes in and says, you know, we're too bureaucratic. We need to break things up. And so then you will swing back and forth. And then sometimes the question is like, are we just wasting our energy vacillating back and forth between these different approaches? But you made a, a tremendous point that I just want to underline, which is that more vertical versus more horizontal is a question of what you want to optimize for. And one is more about you know, innovation and speed of independent areas, being able to, you know, create new things. And the other is more about consistency, possibly quality and probably cost also. As businesses go through different economic cycles or business cycles, those priorities may shift. And if the priorities shift, then it kind of makes sense to say, you know what, a few years ago, we were optimizing an innovation, but now it's really about cost efficiency and quality. So it makes sense to shift the way the teams are structured or vice versa. And I, I really like that. I never thought about it like that, but I think that's a really, really key insight. Precisely. And also I find that in new areas we want to enter into, it's better to have a centralized approach. You're also de-risking it by compartmentizing that group. Also allows that the group to have more autonomy. Well, you're saying a decentralized approach, meaning that group is kind of standalone. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I mean, I'm, I didn't say a decentralized, more around like you want to compartmentize and having an individual group that's separate from others, like a vertical. So for example, product analytics is a new competence that we were building over the last year. Instead of going to every single product group and say, hey, you need to have this competence, we create a centralized product analytics team that has the knowledge, that has the tools to start first. They embed themselves on the teams before they scale up. Uh, so very kind of similar to our apps approach. Got it. So there's that kind of middle ground where we say you can have a centralized team, which is sort of a separate team. Yep. But you can also have a centralized team that's kind of got that like dotted line thing where yes. I'm part of the centralized metrics team but I'm embedded into the Tasty team, but it's, I'm a little different from the people who are like the normal members of the Tasty team. And you try to sort of get both your cake and eat it too, so to speak. Yep. And, and do you find that that's a good solution? Do you often do that with your centralized teams? We do that in areas. So for example, the, our product analytics, our machine learning are organized in those similar fashions. It's because they're essentially extensions of the team that they still have a service oriented approach that their roadmaps are aligned with their, essentially the client. So I'll give another example. The machine learning team has two squads. One squad is focused on commerce. One squad is going to focus on quiz. And therefore the quiz squad with the machine learning group, their North Star is actually wherever the commerce team wants to go, right? So they are a service to them. And 
but they have the independence of operating because the expertise, domain expertise is very different. Therefore, they need that space to operate. This is also why protocols run communication. This is also why QP, and when we do a quarterly power review, they are bi-directional stakeholders. The commerce and vertical team is a stakeholder of the machine learning commerce squad. And then the machine learning commerce squad is a stakeholder of, of the commerce team. And they need to be at the table, so to speak, when they are planning. That's how the alignment can happen. Well, that's actually a great sort of turning point to pivot to talking a little bit about stakeholders in general. Yes. You know, I know in a media company, you often have some executives who are focused on, let's say, audience growth mm -hmm. and others who are focused on monetization and revenue, which is benefited from by audience growth, but isn't always the same. You know, if, in other words, one wants better customer experience. One wants to make more money from advertisers or commerce. Of course, you have technology constituents who are focused on that aspect of it. And then you have creatives. Yes. Who are focused on the art side, if you will, creating awesome content in and of itself. And these people are often um, have different nature, you know, sometimes. Yes. Yep. <laughs> and certainly different uh, goals. How do you, and it sounds like in your role, you have to kind of make everybody happy uh, or maybe not. Uh, well, how is that for you to be in a situation with those different types of stakeholders and, and how do you juggle it or do you just hide in a closet? I just keep moving. No, kidding. So uh, that way they can't find you. Right? <laughs> yeah. One, yeah, you cannot make everyone happy. That's definitely something I've learned over time. You have to figure out, this is why things like North Stars are quite important. So there's a few generalized things. One is, if I don't know where my North Star is, especially for a team, I will try to make everyone happy because my goal, my North Star becomes, am I uh, appeasing this group? Am I appeasing that group? And, you know, within a couple of months, you just realize you can't do it and you've lost your team. That's why I think with each team setting North Star, they can communicate, first of all, where they stand. So when the product manager or the commerce team knows here's the North Star and goal, here's where they're going, they can communicate to their stakeholders, which are our three-sided stakeholder. One side is definitely what we call the biz team, the biz lead for commerce business. She knows here's where we're going to go, and she's in line with our North Star. The finance team really is focusing on how are we resourced financial investment-wise, what kind of people we're looking to hire, you know, what kind of, say, marketing dollars we're looking to spend, and so on, what kind of tools are we looking to acquire to leverage. Those are the financial stakeholders we're trying to explain to them. We are onboarding this new messaging platform because we want to unify 360 view of every single, right, across SMS, across email, across push, and here's how it aligns with the commerce business. And then there's a the content, like you say, the creatives. The creatives other what we call the market writers. They're the ones who are producing shopping content and they are a really core stakeholder for us. So for us to be aligned, we have to understand this upcoming quarter or second half of the year, is the, is the um, a commerce, a kind of marketing writing strategy shifting at all? Are we moving to new verticals beyond, for example, BuzzFeed is, is very well known for the home and beauty. As we move into things like personal finance, how you know, how aggressive are we moving to that space? How are you moving? So that we have to have a really good understanding of where they're going. Uh, another point I would say is over time, I realized that different teams have different time horizon to impact and therefore they will operate on different rhythm. So for example, tech needs a much longer lead time. We can't just turn on a dime and say tomorrow things will happen versus like producing a piece of content. You can shift a piece of content very quickly the moment you know that you should be shifting. And because of that, we have to live in the future. Tech lives much more in the future. So we're planning. That's why quarterly power reviews, it's important for me to see ahead where things are going. And because content team can shift very quickly, recognizing that allows us to keep in touch with how is the shopping content performing 
on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis to see if any new information comes around that, should, that will impact our plan. And then finance is very grounded pragmatically on a quarter-by-quarter -quarter basis. So that's how we operate with them. We know that, for example, that's why when I communicate with stakeholders in finance, I have to explain very clearly, if we onboard this vendor, which costs this amount of dollars, this amount of dollars is amortized across this many quarters, right? So like time horizon for them is very important. Also, time to impact. When do we anticipate the dollar ROI to come in? It's not this quarter, but it's, it's going to be, say, Q4. So they can anticipate. So I try to speak their language. And for and business is different too. So I think that time horizon for every team, the rhythm for every team, when you interact with the stakeholders, you can be very aware so that you can communicate with them very differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when there are conflicting uh, priorities or opinions, as I assume there always are amongst a bunch of well-intentioned people, mm -hmm. is there an understood hierarchy that in the end, you know, Business always wins when there's a conflict because that's where the advertising dollars comes from or the user always wins because we care first and foremost. Is, is there one rule of thumb or how do you determine in the end who has the final say when things are not, you know, everyone's not agreeing? Yeah, that's interesting one. I'm trying to think of a few, like what principles do we use here? I know like Amazon's known for their leadership principles and they often like fall back onto those. I think BuzzFeed doesn't have a strong, you know, here's the 11, you know, leadership principles in here for how we make decisions. But in general, we are very quantitatively driven, like data informed. So we often model out and we debate leveraging either the narrative. We also write a lot, a ton here. So we either debate via narratives or debate based on the modeling we have. And that's often how we make decisions. Uh, because a lot of times I find that these disagreements are based on different assumptions uh, that people have. Uh, is, you know, if the biz team comes to me and say, hey, this deal, we cannot miss this uh, deal, right, that we have. I said, well, what kind of deal? What kind of resourcing do you need? Is it a quarterly thing, like one-time thing, or is it going to be a repeating thing? And it's very hard in just pure words. That's why we need to go like model out. Okay, it's just like a, okay, it's an annual thing for 2022. Great, let's think about it from that perspective. If so, maybe we don't need to work on it right now. Maybe we can work on it in Q4. So we have a lot of negotiation based on those type of things. But there's not, yeah, there's not a one. And of course, product managers will always on the tech side, we tend to be in that overlapping space between consumers and clients. And there's some teams like partnerships, as an example, partnerships team that we have actually existed to be much more reactive to business deals that we did not anticipate. So they can react to a deal comes up, an opportunity that we should seize, and they can jump on those things. This is actually why the reason why we have one of the come with those teams. While the other teams, especially consumer-facing teams, they should squarely focus on consumer needs. Because without focusing on that, we know we will lose. We will win the battle, but lose the war. And that's where negotiation happened a lot. But it's you know, still messy in a way, but it's not as, I don't, I don't think it's not, it's not as messy as maybe some other places, but definitely. Not a straight, straightforward. It makes sense. Of course, it's hard to have one rule of thumb that applies in all situations. And it makes me wonder whether there's something similar to what we were talking about, about teams, you know, that where a product is in its life cycle yep. should influence, you know, when a, maybe a very mature product, sometimes you say, you know what, business needs to win here. This is a product that's at the point of its life cycle. We're really trying to monetize it. And if we have to sacrifice a little bit of user experience, because after all, let's face it, the mere idea of advertising in general, is a sacrifice of user experience. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. And an earlier stage product, you might say, you know what? Our focus, our priority right now needs to be building an audience, and we won't want to do anything that degrades user experience, even at the expense of some kind of monetization. Actually, this is a good point because 
the maturity of the product matters tremendously. And every product that we have, oftentimes there is a one type of revenue that's heavily weighted. So for example, Tasty products as example, because we have very strong partnerships, the partnership is very important to us. That's like the primary driver for such a brand. Some other places such as BuzzFeed Quiz has less reliance on monetization. Our focus right now is much more on how do we focus on the engagement and the retention of the quiz uh, user base. That's our North Star. So when we make that very clear, monetization is actually secondary because you know, we, could, we can actually, actually increase the inventory in quiz by a lot, but we know that's going to eat into engagement that will work against our North Star. So we have to make that very clear. Hey, for the quiz space, engagement first, retention first, monetize other places besides quiz. Yeah, we all have that experience sometimes where, where we were trying to look at a listicle or something and we're clicking next. And every time we click next, like seven ads pop up in a video and something that's in front of the next button. So you wind up accidentally clicking the ad you didn't mean to click. And you know, that someone's making money off that. And of course, you know, I'm always an advocate for user experience first, but I, I fought that fight myself. And I know that, you know, the other side has a point too, because in the end, they got to bring in the money. There's one interesting thing we have been, we've done it periodically, which is to measure the relationship between ad density and engagement. And it, this is not a, it is not an easy thing to deterministically say, uh, here is a threshold where, mm -hmm. right, it's not exactly clear, but as we observe the density going up, we actually try to compare. And there's some A-B testing we have done ourselves to see where should we pair back? What kind of ads do not work for people? That's also why we are starting offering BuzzFeed Plus as a subscription, right? For people who say, I just want to opt out of ads. Um, so there's some certain options. We have not pushed the BuzzFeed Plus subscription by itself. Uh, it's much more voluntary basis. Say, hey, if you feel like, you know, subscription, you know, ad free experience is more important to you, here's an option to do it. But I can anticipate us to, to explore more alternatives on to reduce the dependency on ads. But also that's why business like commerce and licensing and other revenue lines are such, uh, such important diversification for us so that we're not purely relying on, on advertising. It's a portfolio play. Absolutely. I want to end with one question. I'm very curious about your thoughts on, which is, you know, I know you're at the, like the heart of both content and commerce and mm -hmm. some of the ways that they're coming together. And if you look at things like what Instagram's done in the last few years, I mean, we see the relationship between content and commerce continues to mature and intertwine. I'm just curious, any predictions? What do you see in the future? Where is this going? Any new content formats that you're excited about? Or what do you think is the future of the nexus of these two key parts of the digital experience? Yeah, content commerce and people, some, some people call commerce content, right? If I heard that term, like C-O-M. T-E-N-T, -E commerce mm, content. That's we need, another, another hybrid word. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's being around, that word is being around for a number of years now, commerce content. So what's interesting, and I, when I first come into this, uh, this world was actually Refine29, when Refine29 was one of the earliest uh, publishers that really was focusing on fashion, beauty, content, uh, commerce, uh, and showcasing them in, in, in content and brand collaborations. I think there's a few things happening. One is, the return of live streaming, kind of HSN, like the shopping shows, the, the old world of HSN is, is making a comeback in a new and a revised uh, you know, ways in, on TikTok, on Amazon shopping, and we have collaboration with Amazon for those. And that's really coming back. I think that live streaming is definitely one that, especially these days, 
there's so much product selection out there because of the internet, because the ease of creating products, launching shops, because of tools like Shopify, is very confusing for consumers. So the curation layer is becoming a very important part. That's why uh, live streaming, uh, in, you know, people will watch certain personas that really match themselves, right? And watch them say, oh yeah, I, I trust that person. So that's something A, coming back. Two, along with live streaming, Drops. Drops is definitely making a come, uh, not making a comeback. Drops used to be uh, more in the street, street fashion world when they do limited drops for certain products. But limited drops are actually expanding beyond streetwear. Uh, jewelry, jewelry companies are doing that. Limited designs for things. And that, to me, is a response to when you have proliferation of something in, in products. It's very, you want to find ways to, to be unique. And limited drops is really a good way to say, there's only 5,000 of these pieces, and I have one of those. That's a very natural human thing. You know, a watch that's 2,000. There's only 2,000 of these watch out there. And because that's how you find an edge in shopping. So I think that limited drops, and also limited drops across time for a brand makes a case for something like subscription. So imagine you're a member of a jewelry club and you get limited drops along the way and you're the first one to get it. There's only 500 designs making it and turning a traditional retail uh, business into a subscription business. And I think that's actually, I see a number of companies going that direction. And then from a content point of view, of course, the traditional article text base is there, image that was always be there. We definitely have been playing around different combinations. For example, I think that retailers will want more content on their side, right? So I can see multi, you know, multi-brand retailers like Wayfair or Walmart, they will want to include more editorialized content to provide context and credibility, just no different than reviews by people, right? They want to make sure people have as much context around that as possible, approved by BuzzFeed. Content creators will include more and more products into our content. And we do, we're going to do that. It's like natural, basically both, both sides are merging into the center. Uh, and then I would say video. I know video and, con and e commerce have many, I would say, iterations over, my, over what I've seen myself. That's, I think, coming back in a bigger way as well. I've definitely seen a few different experiences and experiments around video and shopping. And I think one thing that has changed over time is, of course, like when video and shopping first came a couple of years ago, it was a lot more expensive for data streaming on mobile. So video was not as, as popular. Uh, that really limits. But these days, with the evolution of very short videos, on TikTok's example, people are very used to 10 seconds, 30 seconds. The data is getting cheaper. So everyone's watching videos on, on, the, on the move and the advancements in payments. So you can actually buy and check out immediately within the app, creates the possibility of, of uh, video shopping, uh, unlike before. And of course, Instagram's doing it. TikTok has been doing it. We are going to be experimenting with a few versions of those. But my expectations within a few years, you should be able to buy what you can see. Uh, is what consumers' experiences uh, will be. One thing brands are also working on, just like ours, is shifting people's uh, expectation of you. When you check on a BuzzFeed example, there's some confusion around what happens after I check things out. Do I ask BuzzFeed, you know, post-checkout question? Uh, if I want to return, do I work with BuzzFeed? Those are the some of the logistical pieces that we need to work through to ensure a smooth transaction. No different than Instagram, right? I think that's Instagram shopping has not been as successful as they want to be. That's why the marketplace like Facebook shop, which is peer to peer, it's much more popular, much more effective because they know if I'm buying some of Howard, Howard's gonna respond to me. 
not not right. Facebook. It's like eBay. Yeah, exactly. So we see that prolific marketplace proliferate first. But I can anticipate companies like BuzzFeed and people. We will work out the logistics with retailers, explain that to the consumers. The consumer expectation will shift, and that can be propel the next wave for content and commerce. Fantastic. Well, appreciate that. That was uh, a lot of interesting things, and I think that you're right. Those are many important trends. So. We've covered a lot of ground here, Peter. I really appreciate it. We've talked about you know, dry, how to organize teams for innovation. We've talked about some of the key components of doing product development and ongoing improvements to products and metrics around it. We talked about working with lots of different stakeholders and some of the trends around content and commerce that are coming towards us are already here. So really appreciate all the tremendous insight that you've provided. Anything you'd like people to do if they say, I want more of that Peter Wang stuff, should they just go to BuzzFeed or is there any other place you want to send them, any place they should connect with you if they like, where do I get more of this guy? I have not been a creator that much. I've been very much heads down, just focusing my, you know, my world and improving the BuzzFeed products. Uh, yeah, and I would say, you know, just contact me on LinkedIn or Twitter, at Peter Peter Wang at, on, on Twitter. I'm not as much, you know, publishing as much on there, but I definitely, I'm on there if people DM me or DM me on, uh, on LinkedIn. I think there's a lot of knowledge, uh, I do think, that buried in, uh, in professionals like myself, you know, as we are, like uh, operators' minds, that I would love to be able to find more ways to, to share them. Just haven't found a lot of time. So thank you, Howard, for this opportunity to share some of those. I can see from everything you're talking about why you're so busy. So thank you for making the time for us. And I'm glad we could create something together here. And now you have created something. And uh, almost a 45-minute long podcast people can listen to and get a lot of insight from. So thank you so much for that. And for all of you listening and watching, thank you as well. Always appreciate your not only listening, but also your comments. So by all means, uh, let us know if you have any questions or any comments on everything we've gone through in this episode. Look forward to seeing all of you on the next episode of the Winning Digital Customers podcast. And as I always say, keep transforming.